Welcome to the Ask Different Podcast, an unofficial podcast created by members of the Ask Different community about Apple and related technologies. This is episode number four, recorded May 14th, 2011. I'm Kyle Cronin, and joining with you today is Jason Salas. What's going on, Jason? Afternoon, Kyle. I'm unburying myself from the foot of snow we got over the week. All right, sounds good. And what about Nathan? I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners are asking. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce my other co-host today, Nathan Greenstein. Hi, Kyle. Starting to see some signs of summer here. That sounds good. I was actually outside uh, earlier today. The bugs are certainly out in full form. And um, if anyone's been to uh, uh, wooded areas in Maine, they know that the bugs here are pretty bad. So they are, yes, spring has finally started and um, <laughs> and the bugs are out in full force. So over the past week or so, there's been a few questions that are that was asked on, on Meta and... Um, there was something brought up in the in the chat room about what exactly the scope of Ask Different is. On May 6th, Austin uh, pointed to a question about a Windows driver, and he was wondering if it should be migrated to SuperUser because it was he was looking for a Windows XP driver, and the th- bootcamp only supported a Windows 7 driver. On May 12th, in the chat room, it was posted a question about the most Mac compatible Linux distribution. And then on, on May 9th, uh, again on Meta, user B Mike was wondering about uh, third party software management and things like ports and, and homebrew and Fink and wondering if those are, are considered on topic for the site. And my opinion, something that I, I, I started with when I first proposed the site on, uh, area 51 was that, this should be a site for questions about Apple hardware and software. And, you know, if, it, if it's if it's homebrew, you know, if it's something that runs on Mac, you know, that, that should be in scope. If it's, if it's about uh, Windows drivers for Mac hardware, that's also, in my opinion, in scope. Uh, same thing with the Linux distribution. I mean, we shouldn't limit our questions to Mac OS X. What I, I explicitly wanted a site that would encompass all aspects of a Mac, including running alternative operating systems and running software that's not specifically designed for Mac OS X, things like like ports. Did you have any uh, anything to add about this uh, at all, Nathan? Yeah, I, I agree completely with you. This, this site should be just kind of a, a reference for anybody who has a Mac and wants to know how they can get it to do what they want. And that is that can be one of the disadvantages of owning a Mac. There are just fewer people who have them, so the chances that one of your friends has one and can answer your questions about this kind of thing may be lower. So really it's great to have this kind of a site where you can just ask something about Apple hardware or software and people who love Apple hardware and software and spend their time with it can answer you. That's what I see the value of this site. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically what I was, my vision for the site as well. This is not to say, of course, that th- those types of questions might get better answers on other Stack Exchange sites, uh, sites like SuperUser and the Ubuntu site and the, and the Unix and Linux sites might provide better answers for Windows and, and Linux questions. But I don't think that that's enough reason to 
omit them from the scope of Ask Different. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we we try to keep a pretty open scope, and it's it's something that's served us well so far. And I I hope that uh, eventually we'll be seen as a as a resource for all sorts of questions about Apple products, not just about Mac OS X. All right, so in general news, we have uh, some news about the iMac and how it's uh, the cooling system is a bit different from the previous version of the iMac in that instead of using a thermal cable around the hard drive, it's actually using a separate, um, it's, it's a different power connector for the hard drives that allows the Mac to tap directly into the some some sensors in the hard drive for uh, temperature control, and this is was likely done because, as we sort of mentioned in our previous show, that the insides of an iMac are packed extremely tightly, and that Apple is doing everything that they can to eliminate unnecessary cables. So. It makes sense from that perspective that Apple would want to pursue this, and given that the hard drive involves taking off the uh, the glass screen and going underneath the actual display panel, uh, and is considered a non-user serviceable part, I think that it's it's safe to say that this is an acceptable solution. I know there are some people that are a little upset that. Uh, you, you can't easily put third-party hard drives in there and use them. Uh, apparently, if you do that, what happens is that the fans simply run at full tilt all the time, which I don't know if any of you have an iMac, but those fans, if they're on full power, they actually get quite loud. But it's it's something that um, Apple has decided is necessary to keep the uh, the insides of the iMac as as minimal as possible to get that form factor as slim as they can possibly get it. It's funny that you mentioned the sound of the fans because we do have an iMac upstairs and I've, I, the, the chassis has gotten quite hot and I've definitely, I've definitely felt the device and listened around when we're, when we're running it, when we're uh, really running some intensive applications on it. But I really don't recall hearing the fan at all. Um, we don't. I wouldn't say that we have any kind of sound dampeners on uh, in the room in general, but it's just not something that comes to mind. Which is a direct contrast from my laptop, who as soon as I've as soon as I've been doing something sustained for maybe half an hour, those fans really start to whir up, and those are very noisy. Whether I'm using it, whether it's uh, plugged into an external display on the desk, or obviously right on my lap in front of me, I don't really remember our iMac turning up to full speed. Yeah, I've had the same experience. My my MacBook, as soon as I start doing something challenging, then the uh, fan gets up to like 6,200 RPM, something ridiculous. But And you can hear it, certainly, through the keyboard. But then my iMac, in, you know, even a huge Photoshop batch process, something completely maxing out everything, the fastest, the absolute fastest I've ever seen its fan get to is 2,000. And uh, I've never really heard it beyond a little hiss so i don't know I... yeah i guess maybe maybe my information's a little out of date um i just remember it was it was a while ago and it wasn't it wasn't this current generation of of imax or even the current design so it's it's very possible that there was a change in in how the the internal uh cooling system was structured that 
makes it so that the fans are are much quieter. Uh, yeah, but I just the only the only vent that the iMac has right now is the little fold in the very top of the design, uh, the very top of the case that pushes it outward. And then I think there's a little bit of a grill on the bottom. Uh, actually, that might just be over the memory bay. But there's certainly the sound is not going to penetrate the glass that easily. It's mm-hmm. it's a big improvement that they've made in more recent years, I suppose. Okay. So I guess it sounds like even if you swap out your your hard drive and your iMac for a third-party one that doesn't support the Apple um, extended connector, that uh, at the worst case, you'll have a slightly louder iMac. It doesn't sound like it'll be as fully fully fanned as I thought it might be. And also, it's it's worth noting that while there are, aren't any third-party hard drives that exist right now that you can put in the iMac that are compatible with its new uh, thermal system, this doesn't mean that there won't be in the future. Um, as we've seen with the MacBook Air, when they switch to the the little SSD that's basically, it's, it's not a, a regular SSD that runs on one of those uh, SATA interfaces. It's just something that like attaches directly to the system board. Back when that first came out, people were complaining that the the hard drive in the air was you know it was it was a completely custom thing and you couldn't replace it you had to get it directly from Apple, but it's it's turned out that several manufacturers have have created uh, higher capacity versions of of the same same form factor and you can now you can just open your your MacBook Air and and put in that new. SSD and and get additional speed or additional capacity. This physical change still still interests me a little bit because now we have a new generation of SATA connections where the power cable is completely different again, exactly as you just said. But I mean, how the the, the drive. The drives have had temperature probes in them for quite a while, and it's one of the measurements that's recorded on the, the smart parameters and it, it can go into a it can go into a failure mode if it's exceeded a specific runtime temperature so perhaps it's just something that they've finally decided they want to take advantage of and yeah that extra one or two millimeters that the probe in its casing takes up uh, we we've seen how how small they pack devices down into look at a mac mini uh, surely with something with an iMac design that's only getting slightly bigger components for future generations they can find if they can find any other place to take that space away from good for them yeah exactly um i think thinner imacs are worth it for uh, these uh, a few inconveniences that was the point of the design in the first place to not have this reasonably large monitor and a huge tower just lump it all into one device and pass on the uh, the display canvas size benefit onto the user Exactly, and with uh, with uh, Thunderbolt, it's going to make it really easy to just attach high capacity, very fast external drives. So it it shouldn't really matter about swapping the internal drive unless it actually dies. So, and hopefully that won't happen for a good long time, but you never know. <laughs> um, all right. So also this week was Google's I.O. conference, and they announced several really interesting things there, and the first of which I want to talk about is Google Music. Uh, right now, it's sort of in a, like a free private beta. Um, people that are in the beta can upload up to 
120,000 songs, which is huge. I only have like 8,700 in my personal iTunes library, so 20,000 is going to be enough for most people. It also has sort of genius-like automatic playlist creation. Right now, it's only compatible with Flash uh, browsers that have Flash in it because the the web interface is based on Flash. And there is also an update for the Android Music Player that supports accessing the, the Google Music service. And my take on this is this is actually a really interesting feature. I've been looking for something like this for quite a while. Amazon's thing is also really compelling in that, you know, instead of having instead of being forced to buy your your music from a specific provider and then only having that music in your online uh, digital locker, whether it be Google or Amazon, you're actually able to upload everything that you have and have it all stored in the cloud and then just stream it whenever you need it. And the bitrate for for streaming MP3s and, and and AAC files is much lower than even 3G speeds. So it just makes a whole lot of sense. It, it'll get rid of like 80 gigabytes on my computer that I can use for for something else. And it's it's just a really compelling idea. And I'm looking forward to uh, native iOS clients for either service. I'm 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 pretty much going to say that. Uh, if Google Music or Amazon comes out with a native client, whichever one comes out first for iOS, then I'm just going to upload all my music to them and and use that service. You obviously missed the other headline this week, then. Amazon's cloud player does play natively in Safari. It plays in mobile Safari. That's still not quite enough for me. Um, no. Because I would like certain things like, you know, synchronization offline caching and stuff like that that would make it uh, a little better to use like I'd, I'd be able I'd like to be able to specify certain things that I'd like to have available offline and to have uh, hooks into the operating system that can support the uh, the play pause forward back features and I was actually gonna ask if you knew whether or not the previous and fast forward the rewind and fast forward buttons worked external to the browser itself because that's the part that I didn't know but play pause itself should but as if that gets you terribly far when you wanna when you don't want to keep listening to the song that's playing right now. Yeah, that I'm not sure. Actually, um, I think because it is a browser thing, I'd be extremely skeptical that it does. Especially since support for Mobile Safari was only just announced. But even still, even if it does support that, um, I'd still want a native client, just because you know they're faster. They're able to do more with 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 native access to the hardware it's just it's just something that i would need and i'm sure that there will be uh, some third-party developers that are going to write one for amazon service i think they might have that already though i think they call it the ipod application uh, well we'll have to find <laughs> out but i'm well, pre- it's 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 just funny that you're saying that you want uh, you want this ability to listen to additional things, and then you still want it stored locally in the application. I don't know if there's any kind of application document storage limits, but if you have if you have your library synced to your device, and then you have your library and maybe some other things you're on the fence about online, then you have the best of both worlds. Well, what I want is basically a single interface so that 
A, I don't have to have 80 gigs of music on my computer. That's taking up a huge amount of storage space. Uh, B, if I'm on the road and I decide that I suddenly want to listen to something that I didn't anticipate, that I'm able to stream it or, or pull it down. Those are basically the two things that I want to be able to do. And the iPod app doesn't do either. Um, I mean, I could obviously buy something from the iTunes store, but over 3G, they only allow uh, a maximum of, of, I think, 20 megabytes for downloads, which is okay for songs, but it's terrible for things like podcasts. And I I listen to a lot of podcasts, so I've already started shifting away from the iPod app because of of its limitations in that regard. And I fully expect that once there's a compelling cloud music service that has a native iOS application and maybe even a native Mac application that I can use to sort of uh, synchronize uh, between the two using the cloud as an intermediary, uh, that that would be the ideal setup for me. I think one of the interesting things about the Google music service is that it's really geared only at storing your music. And there were some talks about how uh, before they released this, Google was trying to strike some deals with the record labels about selling music or maybe a sharing feature for music or something like Pandora where you can play music that you don't own that it thinks you'll like. And really, I listen to Pandora a lot. And I think really for Google Music to be compelling enough for me to upload everything to there and start using you know, once the native clients come out, start using those, I think really I would need that sort of thing, the the music discovery or internet radio kind of thing to compel me to switch. And the other thing that is probably, I'm probably the only one who still listens to an iPod that isn't internet enabled, but I don't know how I would get stuff on there. <laughs> so that would be the other downside on my part. Yeah, if you if you have one of the old legacy iPods, then you'll still need iTunes. So it's uh, it's obviously not an yeah. option for that. Um, and I actually I I have the complete opposite feeling about the like the the sharing and stuff. And I I mean yes, being able to purchase music would be nice uh, and have it directly go to the online storage service. Um, Amazon has this, Google doesn't. Uh, that would be nice. Everything else, you know, I'm not really interested in seeing what my friends are listening to. I'm not really interested in exploring new music unless I explicitly want to. Uh, um, and I think that a lot of like the existing services that do that sort of emphasize that over everything else. Things like uh, RDO and uh, oh gosh, what else is there? And Pandora and Last FM. Yeah, uh, the, exactly. The yeah, yeah. It's it's all about the 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 music sharing experience, and I'm not you know I'm not into that. I just want a place where I can dump my files and I can get at them, you know, via streaming. It's interesting that this is only something that could actually happen in the last two years or so because so many um, so many catalog sites are actually selling unencumbered files. Where not even two to three years ago, iTunes is still selling DRM files. I think Rhapsody in recent memory, and possibly also Napster removed DRM. Does Microsoft still have a presence in this? 
I don't think so. I think I think the plays for sure stuff actually um, fizzled out. Yeah. But I'm. They probably not... still have a store. It's just not. It's never changing, so it's just kind of there, and that's why we really don't hear about it that much anymore. I think the Microsoft Music Store is subscription based. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Zoom Pass. That's right. Right. So I don't. This probably wouldn't work so well. Those are definitely DRM. Yeah. the The one big alternative is I. I could also go for a um, a streaming. Uh, sorry, a subscription based music service, but they would have to have nearly everything I have in my library, and I would always feel that, you know. It, it, I'd, I'd always feel a little trapped by not being able to put stuff in there that they don't have, you know, the rights to or the the, the correct uh, content deals with to distribute to me. So these these sort of services where I'm able to just dump all my files up, you know, whether it's it's you know my music or you know even if it's just something that uh, like uh, like maybe a friend recorded some some like piano recital or something for me that I'd be able to just put that up there and get at that at any time. So um, they also, at I.O., they also announced the Chromebook, which is the... It's basically the release of a Chrome OS notebook, netbook, whatever, uh, to the general public. And it's really interesting that um, these Chrome notebooks, all they have on them is the browser, and a few few things for storing files, but all it is is uh, the Chrome browser, and you're able to access online services like Gmail and and um, obviously all the Google stuff and and Hulu and Netflix for for watching movies. And like you said earlier, it's interesting that something like this wouldn't be possible two years ago because a lot of these services either didn't exist or the bandwidth wasn't sufficient to make them viable for the majority of people. The screenshots that they released also show not only can you access Gmail and the entire suite of Google applications, but I kind of, I have to believe that they put this in intentionally that because these netbooks come with a speaker, a microphone, a headphone port, of course, and a webcam, you don't get the Google Talk application as they've released right now, and you don't have any third-party Jabber clients but because of the plugin they released again around two to three years ago, you can have a voice and video chat or even calling a phone number, you know, most recently that they integrated in the Gmail interface. Um, you do that through Gmail itself because of that contact manager and those features that exist over in the sidebar. Uh, completely natively integrated. Obviously, it needs not be said that Flash is, is uh, installed into the system. It comes with Chrome anyways. Uh, it's It's astounding that we're finally coming to this point where there's one application that does the majority of your work for, that you do the majority of your work in. Yeah, it's also um, one of the other things that they announced uh, with relation to the Chromebook is that they are going to be offering I think like rental programs so it's going to be $20 a month for educational uses and then I believe it starts at $28 a month for businesses. So this is this makes it really compelling for our IT departments so that they don't have this you know huge um, purchase um, request if they want to start rolling these out they can start at twenty eight dollars a month and per seat 
Well, of course, of course. Yeah, but I mean, you know, the initial upfront cost would be $28 times the number of machines that you want. So, I mean, if you want a thousand machines, that's only uh, $28,000. But if you were going to buy the, the machines, it's going to be, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And that makes uh, a big we're, difference. We're talking about two significant orders of magnitude here. Exactly. And I mean, obviously, um, after a while, if you have the, the notebooks after a while, it, they're going to end up costing more than if you just bought them outright. But it makes for a very um, low-risk uh, pilot program for your, for your, your, your business. There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of feasibility in this program for both personal users and business users alike. Uh, the two things that came immediately to memory when I saw the fact that they're rolling this out on a subscription basis was some time ago, there's a a former teacher that my girlfriend helps, and she has she has some physical limitations. She has some physical handicaps. And as a result, a computer kind of sucks to use. And along with everything else that happens, uh, programs crash, things go wrong, viruses come in in your email, this whole this whole debacle. I remember looking for some kind of a managed situ- uh, both a remote support solution and a managed support solution. And I think there was a company, I think they made the green PC and the company's name was green or something along those lines. And it was a traditional computer that was purchased subsidized because you had to pay for a support contract. And they would do a lot of remote maintenance of virus scanning, detection and removal. They obviously give you a, a specific set of how they'll actually warranty hard hardware and it was it was a subscription hardware service and to the best of my memory that's the that's the earliest incarnation of it and this was this was at least three years ago or so but to give this to people to actually have a place still to get help when you need it not to even talk about everything that Google offers about everything being online and if you lose the hardware you haven't actually lost anything it's it's really interesting that somebody somebody as large as Google is stepping into this space. The other part of it was, this is a great way to bootstrap a company, just drop in and start going. I, I, I can think of jobs, uh, like actually enterprise jobs that I've had, where you have departments that are bigger than a small business, and you can just roll out a fleet of these things for a couple hundred dollars instead of investing... Oh, who knows? $50,000 for all of the hardware plus any support contracts plus software licenses and everything else that you do. Obviously, this is going to be limited to what you can do in a web browser. But as we've said already a couple times, that's not exactly a hard thing anymore. When they when they rolled out the CR48 notebooks that you could sign up to get an evaluation unit, they were talking about how Google engineers use this. And they had a private application that will create a... Um, uh, remote desktop instance so that they can actually get to a server and the fact that they actually have probably much like Google Wave and Google Docs they have not only code editing but collaborative code editing and then they can just they all of this stuff is stored server side because of source control and then their build servers just pick it up and run with it whenever somebody pushes changes up to the repository it's a big shift and it complements the mobile device uh, the mobile device uptake pretty nicely well, I think it'll be a while before developers use these, but I can definitely see them being used. You know, if you want to just give, you know, your secretary or yeah. you know, your your salespeople computers that they can just take with them on the road, and 
and, and you know, if they lose him, if they break him, you know, or if they get viruses, you know, it's no big deal. And I think that's one of the big appeals of the Chromebook is that yep. they're they're cheap and they're not susceptible to system problems like that. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. This isn't something that's going to take over everything, but the possibility is there and it will become even more possible now that this paradigm of computing will presumably take hold over the next year or two. Uh, it will just become more and more widely applicable. Yeah, I'm, I'm still a little uh, unhappy about doing everything in the browser. I think that uh, having native applications at least for for some things um, makes it a much Creative more works. We're not going to we're not going to edit photos online. We're not going to uh, we're not going to significantly process batch photos online. We're not going to edit this show online. We're not going to what's another good example? I mean in the near term, yeah, we're not going to program online either. That's that's still not nearly usable enough for what for what programmers need to be able to get done. Right. Feasible, just not preferred. I think in an education context, this would really be the perfect solution because unless you're taking a really specialized class, all you need really is communications and a decent text editor. So Google Docs is more than a decent text editor and Google Voice, uh, chat, Gmail, all that stuff is at least what you need for an education setting. And being in an education setting recently, I... Don't you know? I'm not allowed to use my own computer, so I have to use their desktops, which are Windows machines, which I can't put any custom software on. I can't add files to really. So I have already been kind of turning to the cloud to take care of as much of this kind of stuff as I can. So I've switched to Gmail, I've switched to Google Reader, I switched to Google Docs, Google Voice. So and that really is powerful for me because I can pick up from one of the school computers exactly where I left off at my home computer. And restrict. And since it's so much more pleasant to use the Google services, because I can do that, I've been turning to them for as much as, as, much as I can. And really, I haven't found myself limited very much in the past year. You know, I've switched almost exclusively to Google web services. And for, in a basic education context, I haven't been limited. I haven't felt like there were things that I wanted to do that I couldn't. So I think it's really a good option for schools, especially with the, you know, no big deal if they break it because that's what students will do. (laughs) You know, the other interesting part about this that just came to mind is Google Apps. The fact that there's so many stories about companies and even schools as a whole that switched their their email, their chat, their calendaring, their everything else services to Google. The fact that they set this up, the fact that you can pick up this network and isolate it to your deployment of hardware – they they're selling these so cheaply because they can make it all back in uh it's 50 users per uh 50 users $50 per user per month for a Google Apps for a uh, premium support premium Google Apps account uh network right it's also interesting that uh the Chromebook has some similar applications to that of an iPad and so it's interesting to see you know like in what situations would an iPad be better than a Chromebook and which situations would a Chromebook be better than an iPad and when it comes to running native apps obviously the iPad is capable of downloading stuff directly from the app store and running it on the device but when it comes to uh, using web apps it seems that that's 
something that the Chromebook is designed to do. So it, 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 in the next few years, we'll sort of see like this the, the the tension between running native apps and then running web apps, and it'll be interesting to see uh, where the industry goes and and to see how the products evolve based on based on that. I'm also interested to see how the Google Web Services evolve because if you can put Microsoft, you know, you you cannot put Microsoft Office on a Chromebook. You're using Google Docs, and Google Docs is a reasonably full-featured text editor, but there are still some things that it doesn't do that I would like it to do. And so then as people as people start using the Chrome OS more and say, you know, they start receiving complaints or this stuff just becomes more obvious to them, stuff, you know, a user says, I want to do this, I can do this in Office, but not Google Docs, you know, convince me to get a Chrome OS notebook, I'm, I'm going to... I'm wondering if we're going to be seeing some some higher level features come to Google Docs and their other web services because they now really have to compete with desktop apps instead of just being the web app equivalent. It's the, you know, if you're on a Chrome OS notebook, there is no web app uh, native app difference. It's just what you have. So it's system equivalent, I'm, not I'm software hoping to equivalent. See some, Hmm? It's system equivalent, meaning they need to do the entire aspect and not just this one particular software competition that they can throw into a web app. Right. It's also really interesting to me that um, that Chrome OS and Android are completely separate things. For me, it would make a lot of sense to release a small, low-powered uh, notebook computer that runs Android but also has the the Chrome of the Chrome OS as one of the applications. So that way you, you do get the best of both worlds. You're able to run uh, Chrome applications that presumably could be developed to run on the type of hardware that the that the Chromebooks have. But you could also have the, the full-fledged web browser that you would find on a desktop. And so I think in the future, I think we'll probably see that Google will start to merge these and that Chrome will be uh, one of the featured apps on on Android, and that the two will be, be become harder to separate. And just not having an app store on on a mobile device with Apple laptops, you have the the Mac app store and iOS stuff. You have the app store, of course, and Android tablets, Android phones, even Windows notebooks are going to be getting their app store. So. It seems like this is kind of the gaping hole in the everybody has an app store. Well, well, there is the uh, Chrome app ecosystem. store, but uh, to be honest, that's but it's, it's not just like it. it's just a hyperlink to a website. Uh, there's yeah, nothing. It's not, it's not like it's an app. It's well, it's a web app, but it's not like it's really for Chrome. Yeah, OS exactly. And like it, it uh, I don't know if I agree with that, though, because one of the things that I actually just got this week was a uh, REST console, which is a which is a utility that allows you to send specifically tailored requests to websites. And yes, I've done that before with sites like Hurlit and Apogee, but this one, I highly doubt it's server-backed. I highly think that it's going to be leveraging my own network connection in order to make those requests, and it's... It's stored locally using web technologies, but it's not. It didn't just send me to some application. It, I'm sorry. It didn't just send me to some website. And this is a. What, what's the difference between 
an application. What's the difference between curl and a GUI that allows you to put all of those options in manually? It runs in a browser, and there's other things running alongside it. But that's an OS in a nutshell at the same time. But I think I think the Chrome App Store sort of breaks the the fundamental assumptions of apps that you know an app is a thing that you get, and that once you have that thing, it is yours, and uh, nothing can affect that. Uh, when you have basically apps that are just links to websites, um, even if they're very well done web apps, when you're offline, they're not available. Or, I mean, there are some that do have offline uh, capabilities. Um, or, for example, uh, the the company that made it goes out of business and they have to shut down the web servers. What happens to the app? Well, everyone who bought the app is now out of luck. So it's just it seems that it's they're trying to shoehorn this existing model, which is you know the app, and you you go to the app store and you buy the app. Uh, but they're not providing the same sort of um, things that people uh, would expect from the per- the process of purchasing an app. I still I, – I think we're both right, and I think that's just more specifically the way that the application is written and the way that the service is offered. I'm, I'm fairly confident that there is nothing that uh, – let's see. What's this company name? Code in Chaos Incorporated. I I don't know the extent of this, but I have a feeling that there is nothing Code and Chaos could do except that there's nothing they could do if they went away to actually damage this app, this web app, this REST console from working for me. If they submitted an update that broke something and then left laughing maniacally into the hills, yeah, probably. But if a company just straight up goes away, but the entire contents of the application leverage your local resources, I highly doubt it's going to be a it's going to be a problem of uh, invalid license or the application disappearing. There will still be those, but I don't. I, I think we're both right, depending on how the app is designed. But where but where is the app though? Is it something that you actually download? Because I I'm pretty sure from what I've read that. Um you still have to have it serve from a server i my theory is like is like html5 local storage is like google gears if i don't have a network connection it will use what it last knew but if i have a network connection it'll go see if there's an update an update if necessary i would log off and i would pull the plug and uh look right now but we're kind of doing a show right now so. Yeah, I'd be I'd be curious. Like, if you if like on on a um, on a Chromebook, if you were to turn off the internet connection, close a web app, and then try to get back into it, if it has enough local state that it's able to um, retain not only the data, which would be an HTML local storage, but to have some sort of cache of the web app itself. Um, we'll we'll take this we'll take this to follow up next week. We'll. Uh... I'll, after this is all wrapped up, I'll get a couple of applications that would be that would be predominantly server side to see if I can find some that use local storage, and we'll we'll get a get a representative handful of apps, and we'll figure it out from there. I wonder if we can get access to um, like a, an image of the Chromebook operating system to to test it out to see if it's actually any different from how the Chrome browser itself is right now. That would be worth it too. Yeah. Well, in any case, the Chromebook will be coming out next month, so we won't have uh, long to wait. 
Is there pricing information on the uh, not rental plans available yet, or is it? I don't it's... think they've announced anything yet. Um, I'm not positive though. But uh, if if there is pricing information, we'll link that in the show notes so people won't have far to go for that. But I don't th- I don't think they announced it. All right, and sort of wrapping up on Google News, um, there, uh, Facebook has uh, sort of been caught red-handed trying to s- smear Google. They were basically trying to hire an ad agency that would promote negative articles about uh, Google's uh, privacy stance, um, and and they were trying to do it anonymously. And it all sort of blew up in their face when a blogger approached by the ad agency decided to release the emails between him and the ad agency. And it really just, it's its almost like the, the pot calling the kettle black. Um, because if there's, I don't think there's a worse company when it comes to privacy snafus than Facebook. At least one, not one that's nearly as large. So it... It, uh, Google, in recent years, has has done quite a bit to uh, earn the the trust of people, and Facebook has not. And it's just telling that Facebook is resorting to these tactics to try to get people to believe that Google is somehow worse than they are. It's. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it one sided like that. I think both companies have their ups and downs over the last couple of years. Um, speaking speaking historically, there's a lot more that I have to say about Facebook than I do about Google. For example, Facebook had the when they did the public wall, uh, the public wall of the public timeline. Yeah, the public wall. They dis- disregarded any privacy settings and so a lot of a lot of individuals that run with privacy options turned all the way up were being exposed on the home page uh, and they facebook was quick to fix this but the fact that it was just a consideration that they completely missed is worrying and then there was the first iteration of i believe it was the facebook beacon that would basically take all your profile information and just dump it in the hands of advertisers without you having to say so. There's the snafus that when you join a group, uh, again, in the past, when you join a group, all of your information, even if you're private, is openly accessible to anybody else in that group. So you have these you have these hometown groups and you have these high school groups and uh, college groups as well and everything else. And all of your information just goes to these thousands of people with a click of a button, despite which you have made, but despite which you may have said otherwise. And again, still to their credit, Facebook removed groups from being something that controls the flow of information rather than just being an affiliation. And they also granularized the privacy information quite a bit. Still, kind of sucks to edit. Still, not exactly there in you know personal information in mind. But they're headed there, and they've made good strides for that. Google, there, there was all the, <laughs> there was all the buzz about Buzz. I'm sorry, there was all of the news about Buzz and the privacy, uh, the privacy implications that spurned a lawsuit. Uh, I believe it was late last year, earlier this year, and then there's the predominantly overseas 
and even a couple of U.S. news about Google capturing not only information about access points, but also the data contained within. So they, quote-unquote, wiretapped individuals who were running unsecured wireless networks. This is going to happen to anybody. I don't think I paint Google or Facebook any better or worse than another. Um, Google is obviously a little bit, tries to be a little bit more indirect about the information they get from you, and it it manifests itself predominantly in targeted advertising, notably the top line of the the uh, the Gmail ads and the top of the message list, where Facebook is pretty much directly give us what give us what you're gonna give a, what you're going to give us because we're trying to help you find people, but they both have their own practices and implications. Yeah, when you use Facebook now, you basically have to operate under the assumption that everything that you put in there is something that everyone will know about you, you know, and it may not even be immediate, you know, you, it may be 10 years down the line. So that is sort of what makes me try to put a minimal amount of information in there. And in fact, I pretty much, I, I don't participate in Facebook at all. I, I mainly just occasionally go in there and see what other people are saying, just because it's a good way just to sort of keep, keep in, uh, on tabs with, 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 with people, but um, it's also it's interesting amu- to what was that? It's amusing because I was exactly the same way, but I've actually started gravitating towards Facebook, and I think that's predominantly because I've completely junked up my Twitter stream with all of the crap that I follow. But it's interesting to me, so I don't want to unfollow it. I just can't keep up. Where Facebook is just people I know, with maybe one or two exceptions, and they're not high profile, they're not high traffic, so it's. I see a lot of my friends that follow the pages, the the single serving purpose pages, um, and I I just have people on Facebook with two exceptions that aren't particularly busy, and I find it easier because I can keep up, I can catch up rather in maybe five to ten minutes if I haven't even looked at it all day. But again, that's just a personal a personal snafu that I've created for myself. Yeah, it's also interesting to note that. Um... This is not the first time that Facebook and Google have sort of come at each other. Uh, there was the whole thing about um, the the um, contact exporting. Uh, I believe uh, Google. Well, first off, Facebook asked for your, like your your Gmail account and then password in order to go into your account and then download all your uh, contacts. And then I believe Google blocked that. And then Facebook now had users go through the uh, information dump uh, facility that Google provides to get all your information out and I Jason I think you have more information about this than I do do you want to just jump in unfortunately you just kind of finished it off because I don't remember exactly what it was that was uh, there was the turnaround that Facebook had to block something of Google's yeah Google Google had the automatic importer that most sites use uh, for authentication, for proxied authentication, and Google blocked that whenever they saw the referrer was Facebook, and then they they wound up doing exactly the same thing in the opposite direction, and that was nearly the start of when each company was blaming the other one for doing malicious things, naughty things with your private data, personal yeah. and private data. Yeah, I still think that, you know, I... I I don't know. I I still think it's terrible that Facebook got people used to the idea of services asking for your email account and password. 
I just think that's a horrible, horrible thing, and I'm so glad that I never gave it that. <laughs> Although I I know that people um, that I know have done it because I've seen, you know, in Facebook it says you may know these people, and it's people that I've emailed, yeah. and that have emailed me, and Facebook knows this because it has access to their email accounts, yeah. and it's it's just kind of. Like even if you don't have an account on Facebook, but you have an email address, Facebook is collecting information about you. It knows, oh, you know, this person was contacted by these people, and then so when you when you do go in and you put your email address, and it's like you may know all these people, and you're like, how do you know that? <laughs> I'd prefer Facebook to be a little more cautious and just a little a little less clever, and to only really know the information that I provide it. I think what we what we're saying right now is that Facebook is the new Santa Claus. They know <laughs> when you've been chatting, they know who you send messages to. They know when you're awake and active and they probably know when you're being naughty or nice. Yeah. Yeah, um and it's it's also a little concerning that there's just so much of what's happening on the internet, you know, interactions between people that's in this sort of closed off a walled garden that it's it's really impossible to extricate from. So, I don't know. You can probably tell I, I'm not a big fan of Facebook. <laughs> I'm certainly glad that Facebook was not the, the company that bought Skype, which was the rumor up until Microsoft bought Skype this week for $8.5 in cash, which is a huge amount of money. Skype, of course, uh, obviously... No one that's listening to this podcast doesn't know what Skype is, but just in case you don't, it's a cross-platform application that you can use for for audio and video chatting and text chats. So it's been hugely uh, successful. Um, it's it's actually quite popular, not only in in Western countries but in Eastern countries as well, so that people can communicate with their loved ones cheaply or get through censorship and firewalls of their particular country so it's it as a technology has sort of been quite a revolutionary one uh in term globally even so it's kind of interesting that microsoft bought it because one of the best things about skype was that they were completely platform neutral that you know they have your linux apps your mac apps your windows apps your ios apps your android apps and now that a the creator of one of those platforms is now the owner of Skype. It makes me a little concerned that the development of the cross-platform tools will sort of go neglected. Or they may try to sneak their own agendas in. Like uh, they may decide to make uh, Skype entirely uh, Silverlight-based and make you install a Silverlight um VM on your on your Mac or your Linux computer, and so it it sort of remains to be seen exactly what Microsoft intends to do with Skype and how the the Skype product will change. Well, they they have claimed that they will continue to support Mac iOS and Android, but we don't know to what level that support will be. If it will continue to be free, any any of these things that they could so easily take away and drastically reduce the value of the application. We we don't know how they're going to handle and, that. And I remember an article maybe two or three months ago that was talking about how 
Uh, there were various calls for open sourcing Skype and letting other and letting people run Skype servers. So on the heels of the big Skype outage, day or two long outage that was, I think, in mid February, um, that people wanted there to be a high quality alternative that was based off an established technology such as Skype. And I believe the I think there was news that even preceded that that the owners, the founders, the developers basically said this is never going to be open source. You're crazy, not <laughs> not literally, but they they just they just deflected all of those ideas. But what they did say was that Skype was going to turn more into an engine. That engine being the signaling to connect people, obviously the transportation medium of text, voice, and video, and also that they were planning on allowing derivative interfaces uh, that would just hook into a common backend, that being the Skype engine again. It's it's something that I think a lot of people would be well-received, considering the drama that's occurred with the Skype 5 interface pretty much universally across the Internet. Actually, I'd actually really like it if they they did that. I know chat applications like Trillion and... And ADM would just love to create a Skype plugin, stick it in there, and allow people to manage all their instant messaging and, and stuff yeah, like that. Absolutely. From just one spawn app. off bundle bundle the engine, even if it's locked down, as long as they have a clean interface to uh, to working with it. The interesting part about Microsoft buying it is that I've used all of these same features that Microsoft offers for the uh, Xbox 360. They have all of their they have all of their social features, and more specifically, I've had a video chat with people via the 360. Uh, people use the voice communication all the time, and of course, they're sending messages back and forth via the Xbox Live service. So to be able to do this and to be able to put it on, I don't know to what extent the mobile phone, uh, Windows phone, contains this information outside of the obvious answer of emails and SMSs, but they're they're definitely in a very good situation to leverage this technology in a really good way as long as they actually use it, as long as they actually put it together in all the services where it can unify so much of the different services that they offer. The other interesting aspect of Skype is the VOIP functionality where you can call cell phones and landlines and send SMS messages via Skype. So I'm wondering if Microsoft won't try to harness some of that kind of thing so you could have a phone conversation from an Xbox. Yeah, that would be an additional feature that they'd be able to add into that list. Yeah, I have to say that, um, yeah, if you look on Skype's product page, they've sort of made inroads into... uh, video chatting on TVs and video phones and stuff. So if they do actually open the protocol, I think that that'll basically be like the floodgates will open and there will be SIP gateways. There'll be Skype integration built into a whole bunch of products. So I guess that was, that was, that was the point I was trying to dance around. It's not that they were going to open the protocol. You would still, your architecture would still have to be one that's capable of running the engine. But what they can do is they can present it on a different – they can present it in a different medium, exactly like they said. Uh, exactly like you said. They can create an account interface in Adium to be able to leverage all of your information on Skype, all of your contacts, all of your called phone numbers, any of that stuff. It's – I, I don't want it – I can't call it an open protocol because it's still a black box to anybody. 
It's just the fact that what they'll allow you to do is have it a different a different interface, a different look on the front end. But there will still be no control to do anything about it on the on the engine, on the underpinnings. And that mean that means there will be some limitations to it. There will be certain things that you won't be able to do because they don't support it, and until they do, you're out of luck. It'll sort of be interesting to see uh, if Apple will change their plans for FaceTime based on this acquisition. I know back when they first announced FaceTime and, and demoed it, they said that it was going to be an open standard and they were going to open it up. And unfortunately, you know, that many months later, yet. it has not happened. <laughs> <laughs> we have it on our phones and we have it on our... Well, we do have it on our iPads. That's new. Uh, but we only had it on our phones, our iPods, and then eventually came to computers and now it's on iPads with the uh, release of the iPad 2. Yeah, it's basically on on all iOS devices now that are that are sold, and it's in the Mac App Store. Um, but that's it, you know. And it's pretty limited in terms of its functionality. It, it obviously does not have the VoIP connection to landline stuff. You can't make conference calls. You can't even make just an audio call. You have to do the video. So it'll be interesting to see if if Apple will start to change their plans uh, for, for FaceTime and for iChat based on this latest acquisition of Microsoft. And I think the other thing to ask is, is does it really sound like Microsoft's style to take this piece of software that they've bought for a huge chunk of money and then make it available to other people? Does that... I'm not trying to hate on Microsoft, but that doesn't really seem like their kind of style to me. That's true. I, I, if you spend $8.5 billion on something, you're not just going to give it away. So I think that they probably have significant plans on how to monetize it. Outside of what's already been done with uh, with uh, Skype in, Skype out, voicemail, and the calling rates in general. Exactly. So I was also... Um... The other day, I was thinking about what the future of Mac OS X uh, installation distribution would be. Uh, historically, it's always been on... Well, I shouldn't say always. Um, Mac OS X has been distributed on optical media. First, it was CDs, and now it's distributed on DVDs. But I think we're turning a corner in that uh, Apple is starting to realize that the optical drives are getting a bit long in the tooth, and certainly not every Mac nowadays is sold with an optical drive at all. And they've they've been sort of been sending up feelers for different ways to to release Mac OS ten other than the optical disc. One of course being the that the MacBook Air ships with a USB restore drive instead of um, an optical disc. And the Lion developer betas are distributed through the Mac App Store. Um, so it just sort of it it makes me wonder exactly how the next version of Mac OS X will be released, whether it will be uh, Mac App Store, USB, DVD, or some combination of the three. I just wanted to get your take on that, uh, Nathan. Did you have any ideas? Well, I'm going to guess that they end up moving to the App Store, just because they're going to, of course, try to push that as much as possible. And the other the other thing that I think would help facilitate that is I've seen on a lot of blogs talking about Lion, one of the things that they are 
commenting on is the recovery partition that it's adding, which is basically, as, as I understand it, another partition that shows up automatically on your hard drive that basically has a set of the operating system's core utilities like the ones you would get off the DVD. So instead of boot, you know, putting in the CD and booting from that to repair your boot volume or reset your master password or something like that, you could now just without you know putting in a CD or anything, reboot to that recovery partition and do that from there. So I think that would actually, the combination of that and the Mac App Store, you know, um, supposedly gaining gaining a foothold in uh, the way people install Mac applications, if it does become something that everybody knows how to do and is comfortable using, then given this recovery partition, I think the uh, the downsides to installing it via the App Store are really only your internet connection speed. That's pretty interesting about the recovery partition. I hadn't heard about that at all. And the obvious analog to say right now is the fact that OEM PC vendors have been doing this kind of thing for, for forever. They the the three flavors that Windows OEMs ship things are they either ship you a DVD that basically runs something like Norton Ghost that just images a fresh install back on or they have again a recovery partition that you access that will either leverage the Windows that, that will either launch the Windows process or again image the contents onto your primary hard drive or as we saw as we started seeing as of Vista one of the things that OEMs will do in their their here's how to set up your computer is you get everything set up and then they have an interface for you to burn off a recovery disk that's tailored specifically to your setup so that you make your your account already exists your password's already there everything is installed in the manner that you want it basically speaking for the operating system itself i think one of the downsides to being distributed through the app store is of course you know what happens when your hard drive dies when your boot drive dies and you don't have your recovery partition and you stick it uh, your fresh disk in there and you need to reinstall mac os 10 so you know your computer is a few years old so it came with 10.6 so you got to get your 10.6 restore disks and you put that in and and you go through that and then you, of course after this long install process you got to create a user account and you got to do all that stuff and then you get to log into the mac app store well, it's not you, that long if it's already on your hard drive uh well i'm talking about the installation from like a recovery disk uh that oh, came with right. that came with your computer and then you and then once you finally get the you know, back to say Mac OS 10.6 installed, then you go to the, the App Store and you download the latest Mac OS 10, and you know it'll be like 10 gigabytes. <laughs> so you got to let your computer sit there for a few days while you download 10 gigabytes and let that install and let that update and all that. It just seems like kind of a pain. And if Apple does does not provide a facility outside of the App Store to install the, the operating system, whether it be like a little USB key like the MacBook Air or optical disks, then it'll be a real pain if you have to if you have to uh, change the hard drive out and and reinstall the operating system. Now, of course you could make the case that for nearly all of Apple of the computers that Apple sells, basically everything except the Mac Pro, that the hard drive is not really considered to be a user serviceable part and therefore Apple is perfectly justified in saying that you have to take it into them have them replace the hard drive and then have them put the latest version of Mac OS X on there but I think ultimately it would be needlessly complicated 
you also kind of have to wonder how this is going to bode for Apple retail. Well, no, that's not true because even their software shelf, at least for mine, I have a, um, I've been in some fairly large Apple stores, and then the one closest to me is relatively small, probably a half or maybe even a third of the size of the larger ones that I've been in. Um, but their their actual retail, what you would call their software shelf, is a small, small sliver compared to everything they have because they obviously have all their hardware laid out all over the floor, and then they have the shelves of cases and screen protectors and the various cables that serve all their different purposes. But there's just this one tiny little thing that has Binto and FileMaker and Logic and aperture and anything that actually comes with the various games that they highlight there anything that would actually come with the disc it's not impossible to say that many of those will probably start to go away and they'll be distributed digitally but maybe some vendor is going to decide that they want to follow apple and they'll start shipping a usb drive instead of an optical disc and the case will get will turn will go from a square to being something tall maybe maybe remote style uh remote style size the other thing to mention is that all of the apps you listed are on the mac app store <laughs> and cheaper much cheaper in some cases too oh yes yeah i definitely think that uh, apple is definitely going to be heavily pushing the distribution on the mac app store and i would not be surprised if within a year there's virtually no software section uh physically in the store that they may even they may have like a a computer instead that's connected to the Mac App Store that says, "Look, look at all the software you can get for your Mac." But I still think that there there is a need for recovery media that you can use and you can get um, without having to download it. So I think that probably for macOS 10.7. Uh, you know, it'll probably be $29 in the App Store and then like $49 for the disc specifically to get everyone to download it in the App Store. Um, but it will it will make it more challenging for people to uh, do the full restores if it's, if it's just a Mac App Store app. Now, who knows? Maybe in the future, uh, the recovery media, media will automatically connect to the App Store and try to download the latest version of Mac OS X that you have purchased, and that it doesn't need to have doesn't need to go through all those cumbersome steps to to reinitialize uh, to, to to make sure your computer has the the most current up to date operating system. That's a double edged sword all its own in the sense that you have a one hour install that took that turns into a uh, I don't know a half a day download depending on the speed of your connection depending on how high the patch level for Lion gets and how far behind your actual physical media is. Right. All right, so switching gears a little bit, our question of the week is, is there a way to password protect individual apps? And I'm just going to let Jason take this one because he's been involved with this question. So, Jason? This question was asked by Rabskatren earlier this week, and it's not so much the content of the question itself, but the way that it was phrased and the discussion that brought up on the site. Uh, as Kyle said, the question was, is there a way to password protect individual apps? Drilling down into the question, the detail that he was looking for was he's just a common scenario where you're using your computer, your mail application is open, and you're reading your messages. Something gets your attention, and you have to go get up and walk away. He wanted to be able to close the mail application and prevent anybody else from just coming along and opening it back up. 
The discussion that it spawned was the user asked a specific question. How can I take my common applications and require authentication to always be given in order to launch it? There was one individual who actually wrote a Ruby script that shells out to the system authentication, ensures that you are an administrator and not any other user pseudoing over any of those any other kind of privileges. And until you authenticate, you can't open it back up. And he's, he said the pitfall of this is that, no, you can't launch the mail application, but if anybody's really determined to get your mail, they can just jump into your home directory, go to the library, and just extract all of the raw, the raw EMLX messages. So the discussion was, should we have answered the question, or should we have guided the user in the specific direction that they probably want to go? Uh, so as of last review, as of this recording, there are four answers to the question, one of them being mine, two others talking about other various use cases, and then again the individual that actually wrote the Ruby script and the implementation notes for how to put it in. Apparently Stack Overflow calls this the XY problem, and that essentially means in a site whose purpose as Stack Exchange is to ask a question and get and bring out the best answer, should is the best answer the one that answers the question or provides the correct information for the user? The answer that I put on this question is that you shouldn't be password protecting an application because it offers no benefit outside of that application itself. You know, it's the, you're keeping honest people honest. But what exactly does that get you when the person isn't so honest? So my answer to the question was control, shift, escape. Lock your computer and go go into the system preferences, go into security and check the box and set it to require a password immediately upon screensaver or computer sleep activation. So... Whenever, when I'm at work, when I'm working on something, somebody asks for my help, I stop, I finish off what I'm doing, control, shift, escape. The display sleeps, I get up, and I walk away. I come back, I tap a key, uh, key on the keyboard or wiggle the mouse, and I have to enter in my own password in order to actually get it back. There is nothing anybody can do at that point except get my password by some means, or shut off the computer. Oh no, it's distracting. But my my session, my documents, my anything I had open is intact. So the question itself was answered in both ways, literally and in a deviated manner. The There was a additional question that was posted to Meta by Austin, who was one of the users that commented on the actual question as well, that was asking the, the, the XY problem. Should we... Should the accepted answer be the one where the individual wrote the Ruby script to lock the mail application down, or should it be one of the answers that said, this isn't how you should be thinking about it. You should be protecting the entire session because there's too much to guard with a specific with a specific task such as locking down an application. There have not been accepted applications on either the question itself or the meta question, and it's a debate that is going to continue to play out on the network as a whole. Yeah, I think the best answer has both components. First, you say, okay, this is how you do what you're asking. Then you say, but this is why what you're asking is wrong, and this is what you really should be doing if if this is you know your, your stated goal. So I think the ideal answer is contains both X and Y, and you sort of have to trust that the user will use their judgment, realize that what they're doing uh, is incorrect, and 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 do 
the things the correct way, but if they don't, at least you've provided a, a direct answer to their question. And they're they're free to do with that whatever they, they want to do. Mm-hmm. And that was the rest of my elaboration on meta, is that the answer is going to be relative not only to the asker, but also to the visitor down the road. If they if they want to take that script, absolutely. If they, maybe, maybe it doesn't have any use in protecting mail because of the data stored otherwise, but if there's any other session application that they want to be a little bit more secure, and they generally want to prevent it from being opened at all until they have not only explicit activation, but also explicit authentication, then that's still a very viable alternative. It's not it's not the face value of the question and the answer, but it's also the idea and the integration and what can come as a result of this data existing in the first place. Exactly. So our app of the week, we have decided, is Reader. That's Reader with two E's instead of instead of an E-A-R-E-E-D-E-R. And it's an app for iOS. Uh, so it's, it's for the iPhone iPod Touch, and there's also a, an iPad s- version that's been des- designed specifically for the iPad. And there is a Mac version that's on the way, and it's uh, it's currently available in beta form. We'll, of course, add the link to the show notes. And what it is, is it's an RSS reader that connects to Google Reader in the back end, and it provides a, a really fun interface for reading a, a bunch of RSS items. Did you have any thoughts on this, Nathan? Well, I just started using Google Reader in part of my campaign to put everything in the cloud, and it's worked out very well for me, but the thing I really didn't like about it was the very heavy, I thought, Google Web interface. So Reader was really the best solution for me. It it's a beautiful interface, a beautifully designed program, and I think the best part, and it, well, it synchronizes automatically, including what you've read, what you haven't read. So you can, I can read something from school on the Google Reader website, and then that'll show up as read in my Reader um, app from whatever computer I use it. And so that's great. That's worked very well for me. And then one of the other parts I really liked about Reader is how configurable it is. Like, I don't like images in my RSS stuff, and I don't like iframes, because both of those are usually ads. So I grabbed the little CSS file from the reader resources and just hid those, and that worked perfectly. So I like that you can configure it that way. You know, it's kind of a hackish way to do it, but it certainly gets the job done, and it is more than a lot of other apps give you. And then the other thing I like about it is that it's got built in a bunch of little predefined functions, services they call them. So stuff like copy the link to the clipboard, add a note in Google Reader, send it to Readability, send it to Instapaper, uh, Pinboard, Delicious, any of these other bookmarking or you know kind of read it later web services. So it's really very integrated with both Google services and these third-party services, and it's also very configurable on my end. So really it's kind of done everything for me. Yeah, I have to say that uh, last episode we talked about the idea of a continuous client. Or was it? I think that may have been two episodes ago. Something like that. Anyway, on one of our past episodes we talked about the idea of a continuous client. 
and I think Reader accomplishes this very well because it's 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 a native interface. It's you know it's a beautiful, well designed, has awesome animations interface for the the Mac and iOS, but it synchronizes with the Google Reader backend so that if I read an item on my iPhone, it's automatically read on my computer and I don't have to deal with that there and vice versa. And it, it doesn't keep your, your place in your reading and it doesn't remember exactly where, which thing you, you had stopped on. Um, but by and large, it makes it very easy to just, you know, when I have a free moment, I can just pick up my iPhone, flip through the feed, see if there's anything important and uh, when I'm at my Mac, I don't have to worry about having to filter through those again. And the interface is so much better than the online interface for Google Reader that there was a time that I actually had stopped using RSS. Just I just given up on it just because I, I didn't really like the clients. I was I think I was using NetNewsWire hooked up to Google Reader. Um, and it's it was okay, but it wasn't it wasn't that good. And obviously the Google Reader site itself is, I mean, it it's functional, but it's not really that fun to use. And so once I actually started trying out the the Mac made of, of Reader, I was so blown away that I immediately bought the iPhone version. And I've just been very impressed with it. And uh, the Mac app is very close to being released, so it's possible that by the time this podcast is out that it will be available in the Mac store Mac app store if it is we'll provide a link in the show notes if not we'll provide a link to download the beta so I encourage people to check it out obviously the beta is free the app in the in the Mac app store uh, will eventually cost some amount of money Uh, the iPhone version is three dollars the iPad version is five dollars they are separate versions it's not a universal app but I think it's you know, if you have an iPad, it's it's most likely uh, worth paying the additional money for it. So it's it's a very good app. It's one of my f- quote unquote front page apps that's on the first homepage of my iPhone. It's that it's that good. It, it's that important to me. Well, the the application being elegant is a really good way of putting it. It's very it is a very simple but still a very beautiful app as is, and the customization is quite spectacular. Um, one of the interesting th- things that it does is that it doesn't do traditional badging in the sense of unread messages like mail has the little iOS style uh, red count of numbers that you, of messages that you haven't read. But what Reader did is that the icon is a cube that's rotated on one of the axes, uh, axes so it's very 3D. But it also puts the unread count on one of the faces of of the cube. It's very, the contrast is very low, so it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb in your dock, which is probably for the better, RSS isn't necessarily something that needs to grab your attention. So the fact that it can just kind of disappear when you're not actually looking at your dock is a really, really smart decision that they made to implement, uh, as opposed to something like an email message, which may or may not have some sort of attention, but it was sent to you, so mail's going to notify you in a, in a pretty obvious way. Yeah, and if if for some reason you do like those um, little badges on the on the dock, uh, you can configure Reader to use those instead. So it's pretty flexible mm-hmm. in terms of that. When we were when we were discussing this application in the first place, basically when it became our candidate for App of the Week, we were discussing about how Reader is 
it's not a RSS reader in the classic sense that you see with desktop apps, that being such as like Safari and Mail, where you throw all of, all, throw all of your subscriptions into the app, and then it continually refreshes them whenever an update's available and presents you to read it. Instead, Reader is a single-serving application that you have to have a Google account, and you have to manage your information in Google Reader, because this connects to it and presents, again, all of the same information as we've already covered. Um, and it's an interesting contrast to have an application that's built to run natively versus one that's just sticking it and throwing it all into a web application. There's an application called Fluid, which is Apple-specific, and Mozilla has an application called Prism that I believe works on both, or all, all three, rather, Windows, Linux, and Mac. And what what Prism and Fluid do is they create what they call a single site browser. They generate an application that you can integrate into your computer that when opened will just allow you to browse a specific website. A lot of people use this to make a Gmail application. A lot of people use this to make a Slashdot application. You point it at a site and it behaves it still behaves like a browser, and that's the big point to make. You have this Gmail application, which will have keyboard integration, only keyboard navigation integration, only because Gmail actually offers that. Um, the same goes for Slashdot, but if you point it on some site that doesn't, I'll say Dig or Reddit, I don't know if they do or they don't. All of these elements, like voting and whatnot, you may still have to use your mouse to use. Where Reader is designed to be like a traditional application accessed by clicking on elements, but also has a high extent of keyboard navigation that integrates natively as an actual application does. And it's the same argument exactly as we already had, where both Nathan and Kyle prefer to use Reader when possible, but if they have to fall back, then there's always the web service that Google provides to read through, through their subscriptions. Yeah, I think that's sort of the ideal way to interact with online services is to have local clients, native clients that can access the full capabilities of the hardware to do you know animations and display things uh, in a very custom way, but then they also hook into online services and uh, and provide synchronization based on that. So, in my opinion, Reader is a very excellent re- replacement for the Google Reader um, web app. And it provides a much more native, much more... I, I would say it's it's a much funner interface to use than the sort of uh, standard... Uh, corporate style Google reader interface that you have on the inner uh, on the internet all right this has been the ask different podcast you can find us on iTunes by searching for ask different podcast if you have any questions or feedback that you'd like to to give to us or, or if you'd like some questions answered on air just send them by email to us at podcast at askdifferent.net that uh, .net is important so podcast at askdifferent.net thanks for listening